Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of The Commons is sponsored by New College Franklin. At New College Franklin, students and professors together find their place in an educational tradition that stretches back for ages, returning to tried and true educational practices and texts that have been discarded for too long. Through a robust exploration of the great books and the classical seven liberal arts in an environment of rich conversation, shared life, and spiritual discipleship, New College students see how they fit in the unfolding story of redemption. Take the next step in your education and join the conversation in beautiful Franklin, Tennessee. Come for a preview weekend or schedule a visit at your convenience and continue building on the educational foundation you've started. You can learn more at www.newcollegefranklin.org. That's newcollegefranklin.org. And now, The Commons with Brian Phillips. Hello, everyone. I'm Brian Phillips. Welcome back to The Commons. This is the premiere episode of season two. And as I mentioned in the trailer, if you happen to listen to those few minutes, I um, was letting everyone know that here in season two, we're going to be focusing on important figures and movements uh, in church history. Now, narrowing down the 10 or so figures and um, movements or events in church history to talk about was a very tall order. And I will freely admit that there is no way that I got the list exactly right. No way whatsoever. However, this first episode um, is going to focus on a a, a very significant church father um, considered to be the greatest preacher of uh, the early church, and contributed well beyond just his um, abilities in the pulpit. Uh, and I'm, uh, So we're talking about St. John Chrysostom. Now, I'm joined with, uh, by one of my favorite guests, wonderful teacher, wonderful speaker, uh, well-beloved at Circe conferences. Uh, he is one of the uh, main teachers for Roman Roads Media, uh, founded uh, Scola Classical Tutorials, and also uh, Hill Abbey, which... Um, you can learn more about. We'll put all of those details and links in his bio. I'm joined today by Wes Callahan. Um, so I hope you enjoy this episode on a very important figure in church history. All right. Well, Wes Callahan, thank you so much for for joining me. Um, you are the first guest on season two of The Commons. 
uh, in this season, we're looking at major figures in church history. So I hope you feel sufficiently honored by that privilege. <laughs> absolutely. Very much so. Thank you for inviting me, Brian. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, today, um, I, I couldn't really think of a better place to start. Well, I, actually, um, I debated about the place to start, but I kept coming back to if, if you're going to start with major figures in church history, out, outside of Scripture, of course, um, it, uh-huh. it seemed to me that St. John Chrysostom was a good starting point, because um, we're still feeling his influence today. So um, as we get yeah. started in in talking about uh, St. John Chrysostom, um, let's begin by talking about how how he got his name, if you will, because Chrysostom, and I imagine most of our listeners already know this, but Chrysostom was not his last name, right? Um, it was right, uh, it was right. an, an earned nickname. Um, so talk to us about how John of Antioch uh, actually earned that nickname of Chrysostom and, and what it means. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, like you said, um, that wasn't his last name. The whole idea of last names, as we think of them, doesn't really come into play until the modern world. Uh, historically, you know, people are called by uh, by a particular name, a given name, or a Christian name, as it came to be known in the Christian world, uh, and then uh, and then son of some famous guy, or just son of you know some father, or uh, from such and such a place, or with such and such an occupation. Mm-hmm. So uh, Chrysostom uh, uh, is a, is one of those one of those epithets. He's John. And uh, he grows up in, uh, uh, in in Syria, region of Antioch. So, so uh, he could be called John of Antioch, you know, or um, which he may have been called at some time, or 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 or, or, or John, son of whatever. Uh, but he's called uh, Chrysostom because because uh, pr- primarily because of his reputation uh, from the beginning, all through history, uh, as a brilliant uh, orator. He had a reputation for tremendous eloquence. He studied under one of the greatest uh, uh, pagan rhetoricians of the day, a guy named Labanius. Uh, uh, Chrysostom's mother, Enthusa, uh, after her husband, John's father, died while John was young, she's a, a great homeschooling mom. She causes him to be, as a young man, to study under this great rhetorician, Labanius. And as a consequence, he becomes a brilliant uh, speaker, and that brilliance uh, uh, later on in in uh, in his Christian service as a as a priest priest and then the patriarch uh, and in all his, his writings um, is so powerful that uh, all through history people uh, call him uh, the golden mouth. Um, it's also um, interesting that uh, the church he was a priest at in Antioch before he became the patriarch of Constantinople uh, was called the Golden Church of Antioch. So he's like the mouth of the Golden Church. He's the golden mouth. Oh wow! I I didn't realize that that connection. I'd always heard it just translated or, or mentioned in the context of golden tongue or golden mouth, as in his his rhetorical or preaching ability. Um, yeah, yeah, I didn't, and, I didn't and that, that of course is that 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 is the primary reason, uh, and uh, and you see that uh, showing up uh, uh, through history as well. I just ran across recently. Um, uh, in James Joyce's Ulysses, someone uh, is called uh, uh, Chrysostomos. Uh, because he's a he's a, he's an Irish you know um, he's he's an Irishman with the gift <laughs> with the gift of gab, uh, but Chrysostom uh, is um, uh, the, the the business about him being the the mouth of the Golden Church of Antioch. I just thought it was interesting, but it but it is because right, right. Uh, of, of his eloquence and recognized on all hands 
you know, uh, in every Christian communion, he's, he's, he's acknowledged as a great speaker. Mm-hmm. Now, that, that was both a tremendous gift, but, uh, but it also would land him in some pretty deep trouble later on, right? Yeah, yeah. So, well, uh, yeah, so... It, it, um, no, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, uh, so tell, tell us about that part, because um, his, he was very eloquent, a gifted speaker, a gifted preacher, but, um, but that right. was not always seen as a tremendous blessing. Yeah, yeah. Um, at it, uh, it first, uh, one, of the, one of the most spectacular episodes of how it was a blessing uh, got, got uh, um, um, uh, other people out of trouble. Uh, when he was in Antioch, uh, the the uh, um, uh, Bishop Theodosius I, Theodosius the Great, had uh, somewhere in the late three eighties, um, as Chrysostom was born uh, in the middle of the of the three hundreds, but somewhere in the late three eighties, Theodosius wanted to raise the taxes, and there, and there was a riot in Antioch, and they destroyed a bunch of statues of the emperor, and the emperor was really going to uh, 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 punish the the citizens of Antioch harshly, uh, and so uh, uh, the Bishop of Antioch at the time. Uh, goes to Constantinople to appeal to the emperor for uh, leniency. And while he's gone, uh, John Chrysostom, um, um, who's, who's serving under the bishop of the city, preaches a series of, I think it was like 20 sermons, uh, on this, which, uh, which are still preserved to us, uh, urging the people during, during Lent of that year, urging the people um, to, uh, to, to live respectfully, to live honorably and obediently under the emperor, to reform their lives and so on. And it was so, so, so he, he became so, um, he, he had such a, a reputation, was so honored and esteemed by the time the bishop gets back with the message that the emperor is, in fact, going to be more lenient than he otherwise might have, um, that he, you know, he, he basically, you know, saves lives of many people and kind of saves the city from really being trashed by the emperor. But, um, but then this is reversed in, in Constantinople and, and, the, and the episode that we might have in mind when you ask the question, how did he get in, in trouble? He uh, was became the patriarch of Constantinople ten years later uh, by force. He was literally kidnapped and taken to Constantinople, nominated without his knowledge, and taken by for, you know, wrapped in chains and put in an ox cart and carried under guard. And he accepts it as the will of God, becomes the patriarch of Constantinople, one of the highest figures in the city uh, in Christendom. But he he quickly gains a reputation for being very unlike the previous patriarchs in that he's a very ascetic person, and he very much defends uh, the poor and the downtrodden and the marginalized of the city, and he attacks blisteringly uh, the wealthy and their misuse of their wealth and their and and their apathy toward the, toward the poor, and you can see this in a number of his. He has a book called On Wealth and Poverty, which is great, but also in his commentaries, he's famous for commentaries on. On, uh, on on scriptural books and his commentary in Matthew, he he, he slams people saying, uh, and he preaches in sermons, then writes them in his homily. He slams the wealthy, saying, you know, how can you how, how can you um, meet Christ in the in the priest in church and liturgy, and then reject Christ when you see him sitting in the gutter outside a church? Hmm. How can you say? You know, how can you have such care for your own excrement in silver chamber pots and people are suffering and starving without bread, you know, uh, in, 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 the, in the streets behind the church? And he, and, he, and he preaches thunderously and with no discretion whatsoever against the wealthy of the city, right on up to the, to the emperor and the empress. And the empress uh, Eudoxia is so upset at him that she tries to 
uh, get rid of him. She doesn't like this guy interfering with her wealth and her mm-hmm. even even ecclesiastics kind of didn't like him because the the, the patterns of the previous patriarchs had been clergy from around the empire uh, empire would come to Constantinople. They would be fated at these great banquets uh, and they would go home with, you know, with huge checks. Hmm. Chris, Chrysostom would have would have none of it. He sold the silver plating and the you know the the treasures from the um, from the liturgical tables in the church and from the patriarch's palace. Uh, he wouldn't entertain other uh, other clergy with with posh banquets. Uh, he himself lived in extreme uh, an ex- extreme meagerness, and so you know, um, the wealthy and the powerful uh, clergymen and and laymen alike didn't like him. And the Eudoxia uh, kind of trumps up charges in collaboration with the Patriarch of Alexandria, who didn't like um, Chrysostom for his own reasons. And at a thing called the Synod of the Oaks in 403, they they get rid of him. Mm-hmm. They boot him out of the city. The very day that happens, there's an earthquake, uh, and there are riots in, in, uh, in Constantinople, and Eudoxia quickly uh, begs forgiveness and brings him, brings him back because you know, she's afraid. Wow. Um, not repentant. Uh, he within another year she made she trumps up charges again and he's exiled and he dies in exile because he wouldn't speak softly. Right. There's a, uh, a famous painting, by the way, if, uh, if our listeners want to look this up, it's online uh, by a 19th century French painter named uh, uh, Jean Paul. His last name is Oh Jean Paul uh, Laurens. I'm not pronouncing him right. I'm sure L A U R E N S. It's a famous painting of Chrysostom in the Cathedral of Hagia Sophia in Constantinople, his church. And he's up on this, uh, this elevated platform, and he's uh, lifting his eyes and lifting his hands to look at Eudoxia above him in a gallery, and he's thundering at her. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she's glowering down at him. Uh, so uh, this is how his eloquence got him in trouble. It was, it was, it was unbridled attacks on, uh, the, on the, uh, the uncharitable um, misuse of wealth by the powerful people of the city. Right. So he's he was charged, I believe, with with heresy. I mean, kind of trumped up charges. Right. Um, uh, was was ex- exiled. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was exiled, um, and as you said, eventually died in exile. So so how was he eventually vindicated? Um, was it was it just later uh, church fathers who? Um, who kind of exposed this corruption that led to the charges and the exile, or um, was there something else to the story? Yeah, well, um, uh, he, he was, even though he was in exile, he was still, it was very much against the wishes of the people, and he was still very popular with the people of Constantinople. Mm-hmm. And even from exile, he would write letters back and forth to them to maintain contact and try to shepherd them. Uh, and um, uh, and uh, very shortly after his exile, after his death, and I think it was 407, he, di- he dies, um, fairly young man, his late fifties. Um, hmm. the, 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 um, uh, other clergyman, I think the new, the new, uh, patriarch of Constantinople anyway, uh, is a spou- uh, uh, you know, singing his praises and, 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 and saying this was, you know, a great man, he's a saint and so on. And so within, it took some time, uh, about 30 years later, his remains are brought back from the, from the, from the, from the east of the Black Sea in the, in the, um, you know, the Caucasus Mountains where he dies, his remains are brought back um, by the new emperor, uh, Theodosius II, who's the son of Eudoxia, the empress that exiled him. He's brought back in, in, uh, to great honor and, and so on. So it was within 30 years when he's restored. And, 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 and literally from, from that time on, he was always 
you know, considered um, a, a, a great and one of the greatest and godliest of men and a saint and so forth. Right. Now, uh, so St. Chrysostom was not, he wasn't just a, um, a pastor or just known for um, being a pastor or bishop. Uh, before he entered the priesthood, he, he was also um, a monastic. Is that correct? Yeah, um, yeah. And how informally? Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. And now, how did how did that period of his life, those monastic years, um, play a, a role in his in his life and work? Yeah, um, part of it is um, just in terms of the of, of the course of his life. Uh, when he is exiled many years later, see, he's he's a monastic in his mid to late twenties. I think he's okay. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, his mid to late twenties, two or three years. Uh, and he's a uh, he uh, imposes on himself severe ascetic discipline, uh, very little sleep, always standing, you know, very little, just all the all the uh, all the the severities, uh, and you know, constantly memorizing the scripture. He, so he's devoting himself to prayer and scripture, but he but he's so hard on himself physically that he that he literally uh, uh, injures his own you know uh, you know stomach and intestines, his own health, and so he's suffering from bad health the rest of his life, and that's one of the things that contributes. To him dying off in the Caucasus when he's in exile, it's bad weather and so on. And someone might have, I mean, people you know withstood it and lived there, though it's in the remote, you know, remote regions of the empire. But he suffers greatly because he already already had poor health, brought on by his own self-imposed severities, and so he dies in exile in, in part because of that. We have we have letters that he wrote uh, to um, a young widow who was part of the the widowhood on the list of the church back in Constantinople, taking care of the the clergy and so on, and prayers and so on. Uh, Olympias, I think, was her name. And he, uh, in, in her letter, she's writing things like, do you have enough blankets? Can I send you a blanket, John? And are you taking that medicine and those herbs I sent you? So there, there's real, uh, you know, it's very these tender expressions of intimate love and so on, and she's concerned with his health. And we can see he's suffering. You know, he's like, yeah, this flu has really got me down, and, you know, the food's bad. So, so there's that. Uh, but the other thing is, or at least uh, another thing is, uh, his time in monasticism um, contributes to a couple things. One is uh, when he, along with his great friend Basil the Great of Caesarea and Cappadocia, when the two of them agree together to accept the priesthood if it's if they're asked to be priests, um, he turns it down while Basil accepts it. In fact, he runs from it. In fact, he literally deceives his friend Basil the Great into accepting the priesthood, and then he runs. Uh, and um, so... So he's got a he's got a work uh, on the priesthood. In fact, several works on the called called on the priesthood, right. where he explain, he explains uh, uh, he explains himself. And part of it is a, is a defense of the priesthood and so on. And there's more to that. But but part of it is his time in monasticism had convinced him that a great part of uh, of you know of, of of our of our struggle for the salvation of our souls um, can be accomplished in silence and stillness and in prayer. The sort of thing that you can't do if you're if you're, you know, you're a priest or a patriarch, a pastor, a minister, just occupied with all the pressure and the urgency of your, of your pastorate and your parish and the people that are always calling you day and night, and, and so his his time in monasticism helped to show him, uh, show him that, and also he says it showed him, um, uh, it showed him how much he had to protect himself from the temptations of, uh, of power because of a, a, a priest, you know, a, a patriarch, a bishop, a minister, a pastor. There's the temptations if you're doing well of adulation and glory, and you like being praised, and you like that. And, and so um, we can see his his uh, having learned resistance to that. 
in his attack on the perks of office when he becomes patriarch. Mm-hmm. Now, you you mentioned his work um, on the priesthood, which is still available today, um, along with uh, a lot of his commentary and um, homilies. Um, that work yeah. on on the priesthood, um, from my understanding, is still widely read. What um, can you give yeah. us sort of a sense, just a, a an, I guess a, a bird's eye view of the significance of that work and its influence? Sure. Yeah. He um, he. It's um it's a defense of the. Well, it's kind of it's it's weird because it, he he begins by defending his deception of Basil, you know, Basil the, uh, the great, his friend. Why'd you? Because they had the two of them had taken a vow. You know, okay, I'll accept the priesthood if you'll accept, and they shake and you know deal. And then uh, the guys come to ordain Basil, and he accepts it. And where's where's John Chrysostom? He's gone. And Basil's like, why'd you why'd you betray me? And so the beginning of on the priesthood is uh, uh, John. Uh, defending uh, this deception, and and, and it's actually it's, it's it's weird, but it's actually good. There's a lot of interesting stuff in it. But then the bulk of the rest of the work, uh, and and this is part of his defense why why I ran, why I couldn't face it when I thought I could, is it's a defense of the dignity of the pastoral ministry, the dignity of the priesthood, hmm. um, uh, and, and and it's it's a I think one of the first and and, and one of the best in in a long historical line of Christian defenses of. Of the ministry, by the way, like Gregory the Great's book of pastoral rule uh, around 600, very much in this vein. Uh, later on, um, uh, um, in the Reformed tradition, Richard Baxter uh, uh, has a tremendous defense of the dignity of the pa- of the pastoral ministry. Um, Charles Spurgeon in letters to my students, and so there's this long kind of you know uh, this this theme of defending the dignity of the ministry because it it's either it either comes under attack, you know, it's corrupt, it's full of you know, hypocrites. Or it's just kind of you know uh, um, diminished. Uh, why would anybody want to do that when you have a, a great, great position in the world? So it's a defense of the dignity of the ministry, and of the necessity of of people, qualified people, being in it, um, uh, and um, and along the way, a tremendous exposition of of um, you know what Christianity is supposed to be um, as 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 led by its by its shepherds. It's got a great great commentary on. On um, you know Jesus's interaction with Peter after the resurrection, feed my sheep, and he says he's not trying to, you know, elicit some answer. He's 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 he's, he's being very straightforward. You know, my 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 flock, my sheep. I am the I'm the good shepherd, um, but you're the but, but under me, you're the shepherds that they have to follow. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a um, it's a it's a it's a tremendous book, uh, and it's had um, you know it's had a great influence. He's uh, Chrysostom. Um, in part because of this book, actually, but because of his his hobbies and uh, another thing we can get to shortly. But he's had this huge, huge influence on the world um, um, because of his defense of the of uh, you know of, of of a critical aspect of of the church in this age, and that is uh, and that is uh, the, the ministers, the pastors, and the shepherds. Mm-hmm. You know, Chrysost- Chrysostom shares with. Much of the history of Christianity, the idea that the clergy is not, uh, you know, is 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 not um, uh, an ordination, a priesthood, the the separate from the laity. The laity actually is part of the is, is part of the um, uh, you, you might say part of the ordination as well, because the church has always taught the priesthood of all believers, but the particular minister of those that set aside and laid hands on and ordained to the to the ministry has a kind of respect and dignity that has to has to be defended 
mm-hmm. and Chrysostom works on the on the priesthood is very much uh, very much at the heart of a of a long defense of that. Right. Now, um, in addition to, um, I mean, we've talked about his his life as a monastic and a priest and a bit as a bishop and author, but um, it it seems to me, at least, and, and correct me if if you think otherwise here, but it seems that his greatest realm of influence, or maybe lasting influence, uh, was in liturgics, or liturgy, the way that the Church worships. Um, what did what did Chrysostom do in the in the realm of liturgy that has so influenced Christians and the way we worship to this day? Yeah, well, I, I, first of all, I think I think that claim is true, um, but we could maybe we could finesse it a little bit and say um, one way of looking at his greatest influence uh, is uh, is simply uh, his brilliance as a as an as an orator and commentator. Um, uh, across all across all Christian communions, uh, Catholic, Anglican, Orthodox, uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Protestants of all kinds, and 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 by the way, not just because he's a great speaker, but because of the way he he exegetes. Uh, Chrysostom is known, um, and, and I, 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 I'm slightly derailed from your question, but I'll come right back. But um, he's he's also known for being um, on the uh, you might say uh, on the Antiochian side. Of sort of a of sort of a dichotomy of of, of exegesis uh, in historical Christianity, especially in the ancient church, you have the Alexandrians and the Antiochians, and the Alexandrians are the ones led by Clement of Alexandria and Origen and others that uh, really push kind of the allegorical method of interpretation, uh, which the Antiochians don't reject, but they subordinate to a more emphasis on a on a more a more literalist uh, interpretation of scriptural texts and so on. Uh, the Alexandrians don't reject the, the the literal, but they really emphasize the allegorical. And the Antiochians don't reject the allegorical, but they emphasize the literal. And Chrysostom is known for uh, tremendous uh, 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 putting tremendous uh, uh, weight and emphasis on 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 a on a, on a literal, non-complex, uh, straight up the middle um, interpretation of Scripture that, that emphasizes pr- uh, clear understanding, practical application, uh, which is why uh, people. Um, uh, well outside of the Eastern Christian tradition, um, you know, John Calvin loves Chrysostom, for example, is one of his favorite people to quote from the ancient world, mm-hmm. and other and, and other Reformed authors. Um, so, uh, so his influence, uh, uh, um, his influence in the Western Church is probably greater there, uh, um, with an interesting exception. In the Eastern Church, his, his influence is greatest uh, in uh, in in his uh, uh, influence on the liturgy. Uh, he took the kind of generic patterns of worship that we can trace clear back to, uh, according to tradition, clear back to St. James in the first century uh, in the earliest known uh, uh, liturgies. And then as they start separating, there's various kinds of liturgies that all share this common uh, relation. But he took them, and at least in the Eastern Church, uh, he revises the prayers and the patterns of the, of the, of the divine liturgy, the, the, the Eucharistic liturgy, uh, into a common pattern. So uh, so um, uh, brilliantly that it's still uh, the form of liturgy that the Eastern Orthodox churches use to this day. All Eastern Orthodox churches all over the world use the, litur- the divine liturgy of St. John Chrysostom every Sunday. There are certain Sundays in the year when they'll use a couple of other liturgies for, for special occasions, but the standard liturgy of every Eastern Orthodox church worldwide is the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and so a tremendous, tremendous influence there. He shapes the, the Eucharistic uh, uh, liturgy and prayer life of Eastern Orthodox Christians. But in the, even in the West, uh, there's an influence. Uh, when, for example, when Thomas Cranmer revises the liturgy of the new, uh, um, uh, of the new Church of England, he uh, 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 was, a, was a great student of historical liturgies, and he borrows many features uh, from the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. And one of, the, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the prayers that shows up, I think it's in the evening prayer, in the, in the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, uh, in, uh, at the end of the evening prayer, there's a famous prayer of St. John Chrysostom, uh, that, that is in there, um, the great doxology. Uh, and uh, everybody who's an Anglican will pray this prayer. And many other churches who borrow from historical liturgies will pray this prayer as well. So uh, even in the Western church that doesn't use his liturgy, they have, they have echoes and reflections uh, of it. So uh, uh, Thomas Cranmer, like, um, uh, again, like a, 19th, a great 19th century figure, John Mason Neal, who is a, a composer and a musician in the Anglican church, like Cranmer knew the uh, knew all the patterns of ancient, uh, uh, not just Latin but Greek church as well, and he borrowed heavily from from uh, uh, John Chrysostom. Uh, and the liturgy, the liturgy that Chrysostom makes um, uh, puts together and becomes universal in the Eastern Church is affected in uh, uh, reflected in things like music. Uh, both Rachmaninoff and Tchaikovsky in uh, uh, in Russian music you know, before the Soviet uh, destruction of. Uh, Soviet or Russian Christianity. Well, they didn't destroy it, but before the Soviet Union came along, these two great composers of the Romantic era uh, wrote um, uh, musical settings uh, to the liturgy of Saint John Chrysostom uh, that are uh, famous not not just in Christianity but worldwide in classical music. Hmm. So I think I, I think that your claim is uh, I think your, your your claim is is right. His most lasting and most widespread influence uh, was in uh, his his. Uh, um, reshaping and refining of the ancient liturgy. Um, now, in your in your study of his his life and work, um, are there any other lessons or ideas that that you've taken from um, from Saint John Chrysostom? Um, anything that that you think needs to be added to this picture, which is already a pretty pretty impressive picture of what he was able to accomplish, particularly as you noted, uh, dying in his in his fifties. Um, any other ideas or uh, lessons that you take from him? Yeah, um, uh, I mean, like you said, apart from just uh, the impressiveness of a figure like this, um, he comes across in his. Uh, I mean, and, and he's. He is to the to Eastern Christianity what Augustine is to Western Christianity. Uh, Chrysostom is not uh, read uh, and loved and just you know elevated in dignity in the West as much as he is, is in the East. In the same way that Augustine uh, doesn't have the same status in the East that he does in the West. Both sides like both guys and appreciate and honor both guys, uh, but they have their the, the Western and Eastern influence. Uh, but. Um, but but in spite of that, when you read when you when you read uh, 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 Saint John Chrysostom, um, you get I, at least I get a feeling that I that I get when I read uh, Augustine's Confessions or his uh, you know or his uh, his homilies on the Psalms um, that this is a guy that I would love to have as my pastor. You know, this is a guy. Who has a gentle, gracious, compassionate, you know, Christ-oriented heart, and his chief, uh, his chief love and desire uh, is um, 
uh, is uh, the protection of and the, and the encouraging of and the nurturing of Christ's church uh, and the individual Christians, struggling Christians who are part of that church. So you read Chris, Chrysostom, and he's, and he's just his cannon blasts against, against the, the corruptions of the wealthy. But he also is very tender and gracious. Uh, he wrote a, one, one, another one of his works that I really love. is uh, He's got a series of catechetical lectures, lectures to people just coming into the faith, just coming into the church. Uh, and he's and he's uh, plain and straightforward, uh, and uh, and he has a and he has a you know, just a um, you know a compassionate heart. He's the kind of guy you think you know. Uh, this the, this kind of pastor I'd love to have not only up front preaching the homilies, but the guy would want to shake hand and give a hug as I'm walking out the door, and mm-hmm. you know he says, "Nice to see you in church today." And he's the kind of guy where I where I, I could find myself saying, "You know, can I come to your office and talk? I got some issues." And he goes, "Sure, of course, come on by." Uh, he's not above the rest of us. He's with the rest of us. And that this might actually, by the way, be also uh, a further answer to your question about the influence of monasticism. He's, uh, he's deeply engaged, first and foremost, in his own pursuit of Jesus Christ, hmm. uh, not in the glory of the world, not in the perks of office, but he's first and foremost engaged in his own pursuit of Christ. Uh, and so uh, and you can see that in the in the stuff he writes and makes you feel like, this is the kind of pastor I'd want. Right. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then there's, you know, and you can see that in all this. I mean, his homilies on the, on the gospels and the epistles are just, are just brilliant, but they're very practical and very, and very accessible and just add to this you know, feeling I have. This is a, you know, this is a, this is a pastor. I'm not primarily uh, impressed by his golden mouthness, mm-hmm. although that's there. It's, it's wonderful, but, but, um, and it's not. And this is this is part part of his goldenness. His goldenness is not a brilliant, high flown, inaccessible oratory. It's oratory that makes you want to that makes you want to love Jesus Christ. And not all great Christian authors, um, you know, make you feel that way. Right. Now, if if some of our listeners outside of this podcast, which has uh, I think been a great introduction to Saint John Chrysostom, um, uh, but. Uh, if they want to read more or learn more about him, where would you direct them? Are there certain books or resources that you would point someone to? Yeah, uh, there's there's a couple ways to approach this. Um, uh, one is uh, almost any, uh, pretty much any good uh, uh, history of the church will have a good section on him. Um, you know, and the common ones that are around him, uh, Bruce Shelley's uh, uh, you know thick paperback book on the, the the history of Christianity has a good section on on uh, Chrysostom. Uh, my favorite historian, uh, to this day, my favorite historian of all time is Philip Schaff. Uh, Schaff's got uh, at the uh, not only a good discussion of of the great men of the faith within the text, but at the end of each volume, he's got he's got a chapter with a brief you know, biography and so on. So you can you can you can uh, look him up in the in the pertinent portion of any church history. Um, another approach would be um, just a classic. It's still in print, but the the, the whole thirty eight volume. Early Church Father Set that was edited by Philip Schaff has a huge um, a collection of Chrysostom's writings. Next to Saint Augustine, he's he's got the most works preserved from ancient Christianity. Mm-hmm. And in the in the, the volumes in 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 that, um, and you're not you don't have to get all 38 volumes, by the way. But of, of course, you know, I would urge people to. Right, um, right. But you can get it's the it's the Anti Nicene Fathers, the first series that contains Augustine and Chrysostom. And every volume's got a really nice introduction. There's a general introduction to his life and introduction to his works. Uh, so that's another approach. You, see, you can look at church histories. You can look at the, the collection of his actual writings. 
Uh, and then there's individual writings of his that are that are still in print, very popular. Um, the popular patristic series by St. Vladimir's Press publishes like on wealth and poverty, on marriage, on the ascetic life, on the catechetical lectures. And they're small paperbacks, and they're fairly inexpensive, got really nice introductions by various authors. Um, and um, some of those are a way to just kind of jump into you know, the writings of, of, uh, of Chrysostom. Uh, I would recommend people... Um, I get uh, after maybe reading a little bit in the church histories about uh, about him, uh, or just you know Google him and most most of the things that you'll get the first hits if you Google John Chrysostom, uh, even the Wikipedia article though it's got a series a couple serious flaws, um, you're not going to go wrong by reading their general discussion of life. Mm-hmm. But after that, I'd recommend people get like um, um, you know on the priesthood or on wealth and poverty. Uh, you know, uh, those little paperbacks and just read the introduction uh, about Chrysostom and then and then read the book and you'll get a good introduction to the way he thinks and the kind of you know, heart that he's got. Yeah. Well, Wes, thank you so much. This has been very helpful. A, a great introduction to um, just a, a, a wonderful, important figure in the history of the church, East and West alike. Oh, my pleasure. Well, thank you again to Wes Callahan for joining me for episode one of season two in the commons. Thanks to all of you for joining me, for tuning in. I'm your host, Brian Phillips. And so for now, we'll say goodbye. Make sure and tune in for episode two coming soon with a special guest, Greg Wilbur. Talk to you then. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.